Good morning, church. Good to see everybody today. Uh, my name's Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to continue in the Minor Prophets. We're going to be looking at a book called Zephaniah. It's the prophecy of Zephaniah. If you want to go ahead and turn and look there. If not, it'll be uh, on the screen. Uh, one kind of logistical note, just uh, by way of, of, you know, just bringing in the loop. If I suddenly just run off the stage just because my wife could go into labor at any second now, uh, the good news for you, though, is uh, if somebody will come up here, Brandon, Craig, whoever, you can just read it. I got the whole thing. It's right here. Just anybody, just run up here and we'll just keep it moving. Uh, I'm kind of kidding, but uh, I, I'm excited for this new, uh, this, this Christmas season. Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed their, this Thanksgiving uh, season. I, I know we did. Um, and so uh, excited to, to look at Zephaniah this morning. I was, I, was, I was talking to a friend of mine in the weeks leading up to this week's like, hey, what's your best like 30 seconds on the book of Zephaniah? You got any, you got any notes? You care to share some notes on Zephaniah? And he was like, bro, I don't even know if I've ever even read Zephaniah. And so maybe it's like one of those flyover states, right? It's just one of those like, yeah, just moved right on past that straight on. We'll just get to the book of Matthew. We'll pick up there uh, in your Bible reading. Um, I hope it's helpful to you this morning. It's been in a real encouragement to me to see how much is in uh, the book of Zephaniah, and it's, it's, it's really, really good, and I think we've got some good stuff to, to look at this morning. So um, I didn't say this at, at the nine, but my, my heart is that I, 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 hope, that you, I hope that you see what, what ho- hopefully I'm able to communicate what's on my heart this morning. I hope, I hope that, that what God has shown me through Zephaniah, I hope that it's really clear, because I, I think that I, I, I want freedom for us. And I think that's what we see in the book of Zephaniah. I, I think we're going to look at some stuff in Luke. And I, and I hope that what you walk away with this morning is a sense of freedom, a sense of, of, of empowerment from God that he, he looks at your life and he wants freedom for you. And it doesn't matter how much I've studied Zephaniah. It doesn't matter how clear it is to me. I, I hope that we walk away this morning with a lot of clarity about what God wants for us um, and I think what he wants for us is, is freedom. So let me pray and uh, we'll dive in. Lord God, I pray that you would be honored today. I pray that you would be made great. I pray that you would move in the midst of our church. God, you've been doing just incredible things through this series uh, as we've talked about lots of different things in your word. So God, I pray that um, you would use uh, this text, um, this book, God, th- uh, probably one that we've all looked over at times, and I pray that it would be uh, powerful today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So probably what you've picked up on as we've been reading these minor prophets uh, is that there's this constant theme of, of judgment and return, judgment and return. And all the prophets say it in, in a couple different ways. Uh, they'll, they'll use different language around it. But in general, the, the, the tone is this idea of judgment and return. The, the role of the minor prophets as a whole is this season of time where Israel as a nation itself is divided. Uh, and it, it's trying to make sense of the situation they're in. That's what the prophets are doing. The prophets are looking around and saying, uh, they're, they're kind of going on behalf of the people and saying, what do we do now that the temple's gone? What do we do now that we are displaced from the land? What do we do with the fact that uh, the people that are, are 
enemies are invading and they're carrying off our people. What do we, how do we make sense of this? On top of the fact, how do we make sense of this? Because God said we're his chosen people. He's made promises. How do, we, how do we make sense of this? That's what the prophets are looking around and doing. And what they're saying is God is judging the evil and the sin that is in your midst. And he's inviting you to return. And that sounds crazy to pair that reality with the theme of freedom. But it's what I hope that we walk away with today. Let me ask you a question. How does a person attain freedom? How does a person attain freedom? Is it like a gift? Could I just get like a little package of freedom and give it to you for Christmas? Is it, is, right? Is it that kind of a thing? Or is it something that you could, you could go and you could just work and if you worked hard enough, you could attain freedom? Or uh, is, is it something that, well, you know, if I got my spiritual activities and if I prayed enough, then if I did enough of the right kind of stuff, I could earn freedom. Is that how freedom works? I believe the story of of Zephaniah, what I think it informs us of is that the path to freedom is living according to God's design. The, The road to freedom is paved by living life according to God's design. That's important. We have to start there in our journey towards freedom because we gotta keep this square in our minds. Anything that leads us back to God's design is God's grace, including judgment. If we're gonna face the judgment of God, we have to understand that that is God's grace leading us back to God's design. If he's leading us back to his design, he's bringing us to freedom. Therefore, when we think about a topic like judgment, we can begin to see that judgment is in fact God's grace in our lives. And that's a, that's a challenging reality, especially for us as Americans, right? Americans feel like freedom is free. It's a, it's a, it's a value. It's just the, we're just fish in that water. It's just the water that we exist in. We're free. But I want to look at a few sample verses within Zephaniah. We're going to look at, at Luke, uh, the gospel of Luke as well, to, to look and see that the path to true freedom exists in living according to God's Design. What are a few things that force us to live in bondage? I had someone that came to the church a few weeks ago, and they were sharing with me this, this awful reality. They just needed somebody to talk to, and they were experiencing the bondage of sickness. And it was the type of sickness that was terminal. There were, there, the doctors are out of medical remedies, They are bound by the limits of medicine. They are bound by the limits of their own body. And they're coming to me and saying, hey, somebody came and and shared with me, you know, like if I will pray enough, if I will just believe, if if my belief is pure enough, then I I can have some healing. That would be what we would, you know, qualify as the prosperity gospel, That's not something we can just manipulate God into. But can you imagine being at the place of such bondage and such desperation that, hey, I'm I'm looking at a death sentence here. I'll do anything. 
And if there was anything that I could do in that moment to give her freedom, I would have. And, and as they are experiencing this reality, as they're thinking through, is there some healing out there for me? I was reminded of the story of Lazarus. So, so the story of Lazarus is he's, he's facing the same thing, a death sentence, to the point where his closest two uh, family members are like, Jesus, if you'll get here, you can change this. And Jesus doesn't get there in time. And Lazarus dies. And Jesus gets there and they say, Jesus, Jesus, if you would have gotten here, my brother would still be alive. And Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Incredibly powerful story. But what do we know about Lazarus? He's dead. He faces death again. And what I shared with them was, regardless of, of the, can God heal? Absolutely. Can God do miracles? Absolutely. And this could all be remedied. This specific thing could be remedied. And you are still going to face death. Does God heal? Yes. Does God do miracles? Yes. But we will still meet death. And death itself is part of God's grace. Genesis 3, 22 through 23 paints this picture that after Adam and Eve have eaten of the tree, that God said, do not eat of this tree. It says, now that, they've, now that they know eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, let us spare them from eating of the tree of eternal life that they may not exist forever in this eternally broken state. And they move them out of the garden. It is God's grace that we're not, we're not forced to spend an eternity in a broken vessel. Instead, God promises us a new vessel through Jesus. What we see is that the, we, we're still, regardless of that miracle would have happened for that person, regardless if healing would have come for that thing, death comes for us all. We are still in the bondage of sin. What we need is the assurance of freedom for this life, for sure, through Jesus. But we need an assurance of freedom after death. So as we look at Zephaniah, what role does Zephaniah play as we think about this? We're going to look at a few sample verses starting in chapter 1. But number one, God must judge evil. God must judge evil. And the second role is that God's judgment leads to our freedom. I'm not having to jump ahead to the New Testament to make this point. We're going to see this at the end of Zephaniah 3, that God's judgment leads to our freedom. So Zephaniah picks up in this story of Israel at this time. Israel is, the, the, is a nation at this point that God has led his people into. And now it's the divided kingdom. There's a northern kingdom that they still refer to as Israel and a southern kingdom known as Judah. Israel is a hot mess. They are just a disaster. And they are, they are falling apart. That as a nation is falling apart. And Judah is still trying to get its stuff together. At this point, Judah has a what would be referred to as a good king. In verse one or two right there, it talks about uh, in the days of Josiah. Josiah was the last good king in Judah. And so think about this. This is what's important is that Zephaniah is proclaiming this message when he has an ally at the highest seat of authority. 
Feels like Zephaniah's got some stuff going in his favor. Another thing going in Zephaniah's favor, Zephaniah himself was a descendant of a king. And so he himself is royalty, probably still living in the royal court with a current king who's in favor of his message. We would think, wow, who wouldn't listen to that? And then Zephaniah is proclaiming uh, this message of, of return to the Lord. Who, who would disagree with that? Easy enough. But what's so alarming and what we fast forward to the other side of Jesus, fast forward to today, 2021, it's 21, right? Yeah, it's almost 22. Haley, you got me? Is it 20, 20, 21? So we would fast forward to today. What's important for us is that what Zephaniah shows us is that even when we're in a season of peace, disaster can be brewing. Disaster and suffering can be right around the corner, even in a season of peace. And if you've lived any amount of time, certainly anybody that's lived longer than I have, because I know I've seen it, this is incredibly true. Things can be going great right now, and you don't know what's around the corner. So a friend of mine works in forestry, and we were talking. I, was, I, I, I just like learning what people do. I like learning about their, their job, and I was asking him some questions about uh, his job, and he was explaining to me the value of control burning. Uh, I, I certainly saw my dad do this growing up. I didn't really understand why. I just thought he wanted to get out of the house and set a field on fire. Uh, but there's a value in controlled burning for trees. So if you see a long stretch of planted pines, you'll see some that you're like, wow, you can really see. Like you can see straight on through for a long ways because there's nothing interfering with each row. And then you'll see others where you look like, I can't tell if that's like a like a bunch of, you know, you know, just brush or if that's planted pines, I, what's going on here? And that's because what you should be doing is controlled burning that stuff underneath because it allows the trees to grow higher. And the flip side is that if you don't control burn, that when something does catch on fire, it not only kills the stuff that doesn't need to be growing, it also kills the stuff that you want to stay there. We're certainly seeing this in the state of California where their forestry decided to not do control burning. Fire bad, fire bad. That's basically what's happening. We don't want any fire here. Look what happens when fire happens. And so instead of control burning the things that they don't want growing, the leaves, the brush, it just kind of keeps packing up and packing up and getting higher and higher and higher. And that stuff then, when it does catch fire, which it inevitably does, it gets really, really bad. Here's the point for us. We can fail to work at the stuff that needs to be tended, but that doesn't mean that danger is not still looming. So like I said, my dad would burn these big stretches of land. And when I was a kid, I was like, oh, this is so boring. Dad, can we just go shoot hoops? Why do we have to burn another field? Can we go like throw the baseball? Can we go throw the football? Can we go do whatever? But the reality that my dad understood that I didn't was that if I don't work at this stuff, when the fire does happen, it's gonna be a lot worse. And the, the thing that we have to internalize for our spiritual lives is this, that you may feel comfortable, provided for, and well off right now, but that doesn't mean suffering isn't around the corner. This is exactly the case in Judah at the time of Zephaniah. The brush has piled up real high in Judah. The underbrush, the stuff that shouldn't be there, it's getting real tall. 
But the thing about that is, is that Judah has no idea what's going on. Let's look at chapter one, verses four through six. This is the word of the Lord to Zephaniah. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Uh-oh. That sh- you should read that and go, uh-oh. That ain't good. Among what's supposed to be the functional kingdom of Judah. Israel's a mess, right? Northern kingdom a mess, southern kingdom. We're still trying to figure it out. Among the people who are supposed to have it together, God is saying to Zephaniah, the people still have a remnant of Baal. Baal is a foreign God, a false God, somebody that has distracted, an idol that has distracted the people of God for a long time now. And he's saying, not only is there a remnant of Baal within them, but it's infected the priests. Verse five, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Milcom is another name for a God called Molech. If you've read the book of Ruth, Ruth was from the land of Moab. The God of Moab is Molech. Part of worship of Molech is taking infants, newborns, and putting them in a fire and burning them to the name of Molech. Trying to earn and and, and garner favor from a false God, while the text says also praying to Yahweh, praying to the Lord. God is bringing a charge against his people saying, you are confused. You are are saying you're worshiping me and you're expecting the results of only worshiping me while also throwing newborns into a fire? Judah has mixed worship, which turns out to be no worship of Yahweh at all. And the second problem, look at verse 12 in chapter one. It says this, at that time, I, the Lord, will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Get this scene. So Judah is supposed to be not just like the chosen land of the world, but it's also supposed to be the chosen kingdom within a jacked up nation. And then within that, this is supposed to be the chosen city for God's chosen people for where the temple is, which should be the holiest of holy places. That's where God's presence was supposed to be. And the text says that God is walking around his chosen city with a lamp because it's gotten so dark. He's walking around and looking because it has grown to be such a dark place that the people are hiding from the presence of God. And it says when God stumbles upon them, they are a complacent people. And not only that, they're saying once he gets there, what he discovers is that this is a group of people that says, God don't care. God's not gonna do good for us and God's not gonna punish us. God's not gonna bless us and God's not gonna do ill. He just completely, so what they are is they are mixed in worship, but then they are also, they are also dismissive both of the purposes of God and dismissive of the consequences of God. God's not going to do good. 
There's no purpose in serving him. God's not going to do ill. There's no consequences. We can do whatever we want, including throwing a newborn into a fire. They're worshiping this idol, and all the while they're looking around like, what's the problem? What's, what's God got against us? Zephaniah 1 and 2 are painting a picture for us, the reader. There's this day of, of, of reckoning coming for evil. The text refers to this as the, the day of the Lord. And what it's challenging is this idea that we could think we have it together in the name of Jesus and could be completely confused of what true worship of God looks like. It's challenging. This. So Zephaniah goes roughly like this. Zephaniah 1, the day of the Lord is coming. In other words, a day is coming when God is going to reckon with evil. Chapter 2 through the first part of chapter 3, God will challenge those people. He will judge also those who are evil and those who are evil but call it religion. The big takeaway for us from Zephaniah is that God must judge evil. And the big takeaway on the second part is God's judgment of that evil is meant to lead us to freedom. What do you think about, and this is something we need to unpack, what do you think about when you hear the word judgment? Maybe you're used to some religious pictures of judgment, right? God in heaven with a lightning bolt ready to, you know, just get after it. Maybe you're used to this idea of, of punishment, right? Like God's judging me because I did something bad over here and so now he's punishing me. Maybe you're used to a religious picture of judgment or maybe you're used to God sitting behind like a giant Judge Judy bench with his gavel and he's like, that was bad, here's judgment. And he just slams the gavel down. Maybe you're used to that kind of picture of, of judgment. Maybe you're used to a more social idea of judgment, right? Things like, it's, not a, it's, 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 a, it's a bad value to judge people. We don't, we don't wanna judge people. Don't wanna judge a book by its cover. Maybe that's, that's something you grew up hearing or maybe you're used to this idea that religious people are judging people. Maybe that's, that's something that's been a social value that shaped you is that, yeah, if you, if you go, if you bump up against religious people, probably Christians, you're gonna encounter a judgy person. Don't wanna do that, judgy bad. We don't wanna do that. Maybe, maybe you've been shaped by a, the social value, which is not a, it's a, it's the right value, is that uh, forms of bigotry and racism are forms of prejudgment or prejudice. That's something that you've encountered. Maybe that's something that you've, you've seen and experienced. That's a form of prejudgment that you, you know that's bad. We don't want that. That's an that's a awful value. That's not the kind of value that we want to shape us. And I would say, this is what I would say based off looking at Zephaniah, is that Zephaniah challenges both of those. It challenges this religious vision that would say, I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding God's judgment because I'm a follower of God. Or from the social value that would say judgment is bad. Being judgy is bad. I mean, passing judgment on people is bad. It goes roughly like this. Zephaniah 1, the day of the Lord is coming. Zephaniah 2, God will judge evil. In the first half of Zephaniah chapter three, God will judge those that cover their evil with religion. Listen to this chapter two, verse eight. 
I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they, have taunt, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. God is saying, I see people that are hurting my people. I am against those who hurt my people. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Woe to her, her being Jerusalem. Woe to Jerusalem who was rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. The city that was supposed to be a city of freedom has become an oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. God, through Zephaniah, is challenging Judah. Yes, I am against your enemies and the people that hurt you, but I am against your complacency. I am against your idolatry. So there's a real practical warning for us today. God is against those that hurt his people. Do you mock Christians? Do you mock people who need community or are in a connect group? Do you mock people who give of their resources to the local church? Do you have a condescending attitude towards people who go to therapy? Do you have a spirit of non-participation in discipleship? Do you think missions is silly, like the global spread of the gospel? Why would we do that? Do you mock the way that people pray? Just silently, just sitting there. When you hear other people pray, you're like, that's silly. God sees your attitude and is against your hurt of his people. But not only is God against those that hurt his people, he is against complacent Christians that won't listen to correction. And if I had any fear for us, for us as a church, it would be the latter, that we would become complacent and stuck where we are, thinking that we're okay because we attend the right type of church. Or we attend church every Sunday, or we do this, or we do that. But God is against our complacency and when we won't listen to correction. Are you yourself avoiding community? Are you avoiding accountability? Are you avoiding serving? Are you avoiding prayer? Was someone finding out about what your quiet time is like, would that embarrass you? Do you get defensive talking about your walk with God? God is against our complacency because listen, that complacency is a form of bondage. God wants us to live freely, walking and serving and, and chasing after him. And we can't do that when we're in the bondage of complacency. Here's the good news. We said in the beginning, our two big realities in Zephaniah is that God must punish evil and God's judgment is meant to lead to our freedom. Listen to this reality from Zephaniah 3. This is verses 11 through 13. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Everything's changed. The whole tone of Zephaniah has changed. Some, some strange thing has occurred to where everything that we were building up to has completely been reversed. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, 
They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So Zephaniah 1, the day of the Lord is coming. Zephaniah 2, God will judge evil. Zephaniah 3, part 1, God will judge those that cover their evil with religion. In Zephaniah 3, the second part, God's judgment leads to him singing over his people. The point is that these things don't add up. The prophet is looking at the people, knowing that they are living in evil, both religious and non-religious evil, saying God is going to judge this. But somehow, in a way that Zephaniah cannot explain, somehow God will sing over his people. Zephaniah paints a picture of what God could do through his judgment. What we see now, fast forward all these years later, is that we see through Jesus what God was willing to do to reconcile us to him. Zephaniah shows a day of judgment that terrifies the reader. And Jesus makes it the day that we look forward to the most. See, Zephaniah is looking through time and he is seeing this prophecy that we must repent and return to the Lord. I don't know how it's going to happen, but God will sing over those who truly worship him. He's going to leave a holy remnant within them. And if you look at Zephaniah 3, the emphasis is on the work that God will do in us. And we look and we see, I've got it figured out. Jesus is that remedy. Jesus is the one who died in our place and reconciled us to the Father so that this righteous living that's at the end of Zephaniah 3 that makes no sense when you read it, only through Jesus do we get to see the result of how everything shakes out in a way that Zephaniah can't fully see. Somehow, those who truly were God's people, God desires to free those people that he might sing over them. Zephaniah 3, 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Friends, God wants to bring us to a place of freedom and help us live the type of life that he looks and he pauses everything going on in heaven. And he's, the whole of heaven just pauses and sings over the work that God has done in our life. The day of the Lord is coming. God will judge evil. God will judge those that cover their evil with religion. And God's judgment leads to him singing over his people. Friends, it is God's grace that he draws us away from evil. Judah couldn't see its evil. Understand that about Zephaniah. Judah is looking around and like, I don't see the problem. I'm I'm a chosen one of God as I throw this newborn into a fire. Friends, we can become that delusional. Apart from God's grace, we can become that confused about our relationship with God. That process, that process of God drawing us away from evil, back to his presence, back to living according to God's design, that is part of judgment. God looking at our life and saying, friend, don't go that way. Return to my design. 
Anything that God would do to draw us away from that is God's grace. But how does he do it? Here are three things that I see, three general ways that God begins to pull us away from evil. And I hope these are are helpful as you look at your own life. Number one, he makes us uncomfortable where we are. I don't know how that applies to you specifically. But is God beginning to stir something in you that you're becoming uncomfortable where you are? Whether it's your devotion, whether it's your current time with him, whether it's your priorities in life, whether it's your priorities in all the decisions that you make, your hobbies, your habits, whatever it might be, is God stirring something that's making you uncomfortable? That's part of God's judgment leading you back to his design. Number two, he makes us dissatisfied with what we have. I'll never forget that interview with Tom Brady after he's won ring after ring after ring. He's got everything that he could possibly imagine in life and he looks straight into a camera and says, all I can think about is what else is there? Is this all there is? Have you ever been around somebody who had everything that you could possibly imagine you wanting and they have it and they are dissatisfied? That's God stirring something in you, in them, in us that if, we could get to, if he could get us to a place of dissatisfied with what this world has to offer, he's got an eternity for us. He makes us uncomfortable where we are. He makes us dissatisfied with what we have. And hopefully those two things result in this. He brings us to our senses. Jesus shares this story in a very similar way in the Gospel of Luke, and I want to read it to you. This is a parable that interestingly enough, understand this, understand the parallel here. Jesus is challenging the Pharisees, the religious people that think they have it together, the people that feel like we are justified in the way that we live, the same people that are, that are oppressing through legalism, through religion, they're oppressing their fellow Israelite, their fellow Jew. And this is the parable that he challenges them with. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Understand that that type of a challenge, a requesting of your inheritance before your father or your mother passed was as good as saying, I wish you were dead. Give me what's coming to me. That's, that's what's taking place in Luke 15. And he divided his property between them. The father released the younger son to what it was that he was requesting. Not many days, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far off country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. First of all, he's a part of a family that has the resources to be able to divide it into a third and give it to the son and the son's able to go off scot-free. In other words, he was a part of a family that you and I would dream of being a part of. And then he takes it and he loses all of it. And he is at the lowest point feeding pigs their little piggy pods. But when he came to himself, this is our hope, 
When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The prodigal son was made uncomfortable where he was, dissatisfied with what he had. And the text says he came to his senses. And in the end, the father sings over him. He throws a party and invites everybody in. This son that was lost, he is found. Friends, that is what Zephaniah is describing. The scene where the son that was lost, who was far from God, is brought near and is saved. But there is another brother, the older brother, right? The rule-following religious brother. Now his older son was in the field, this is verse 25, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There was nothing that the father could do to want freedom for his younger for the younger son. And there was nothing that there, there was no amount of grace that appears that the father could give the older brother who is obviously in the same set of bondage. I get emotional reading that text because as a pastor, I get to see both forms of bondage people that feel so justified where they are. They feel so justified in the way they treat other people because they're a Christian. They feel so justified in their anger, so justified in their bitterness. And they're sitting away from God's table, looking at God's people and saying, I've served for all these years. And I see the other bondage of feeling like, I I just have to get away from all of this. I have to get away from from everything that God has been inviting me to for years. Freedom is out there. 
Here's the challenging question for us this morning. Are we going to let God's work of making us uncomfortable, making us dissatisfied with the world, and bringing us to our senses, are we going to let that process have its effect? The, the, Luke 15 is clear that the father day after day, day after day is standing there looking and waiting for the younger son to return. He's waiting for us. He's, there's this process that he's trying to put us through to make us uncomfortable with this world, dissatisfied with this world, that we would come to our senses and come back to the father who created us in the first place. Or will we be like the older brother And will we resist the Father? Will we resist God's design for our life? This is what's been challenging to me, having lived in a couple different states and having now moved back to roughly where I was born. The challenging reality for me about ministry in the South is that in the South, it's easier to preach the gospel, see someone accept Christ, and then be baptized, and we all stand up and celebrate than it is to challenge a quote-unquote Christian about their walk with God. It's easier to stand up and celebrate somebody going from something that Jesus died on the cross to see happen, to see somebody go from death to life. It's, it's more common to see that than to see somebody grow in their relationship with Christ. It's easier here to see salvations and get excited about that, but it's way harder to see sanctification. It's easier to see people make decisions about Jesus than it is for people to enter into discipleship and learning to follow Jesus. This is what's challenging. People made decisions in Jesus' day. The text refers to them as the crowd the people who were not the disciples, the hundreds of people that are just following around like Jesus is some kind of circus show. And the text says when the going going got tough, they made another decision to leave. Have you made a decision about Jesus or are you a disciple of Jesus? Is it in your DNA? Is it deeply who you are as a follower of Jesus? A person who has said, I don't want to be part, I don't, I don't want the primary thing that defines me as my family of origin, the country I was born in, the way I was raised, none of that. I want the ways of Jesus to deeply define who I am. In the Bible Belt South, we treat following Jesus so often as a life of famine rather than a royal feast. What awaited the younger brother in returning home was a royal feast. But look at the older brother. He's like, look at this famine I'm stuck in. A party is happening and I'm not going in because I deserve more. We walk around like Jesus better know here in the South as Christians, we walk around like Jesus better know how hard this being a Christian thing is. Look at the world feasting on all this good stuff. Some of us walk around thinking the world gets the money we wish we had, the sex we wish we could have, the possessions that we wish we had, the fun we wish that we could have. And we're sitting at the king's table starving 
while we stare into the world thinking there's some better stuff out there. Picture that. You're sitting at the king's royal feast, daydreaming out the window, thinking there's a feast out there. The two brothers in the parable from Luke had the same father. That's the reality and the truth of the world. God created it and everything in it is his. The one sprinting far from him and the one sitting at his own table ignoring him. The father loved them both and he didn't shun them for either of their dysfunctions. If you are here and you've run far from God, return to your senses. Jesus died for you. He wants to welcome you back into the family that he created in the first place. And if you're here and you've considered yourself a Christian for any amount of time, we need to be very careful that we are not deceiving ourselves. The reality is that the older brother needed to come to his senses. He too was abandoning his family. And you and I abandon the family of God when we fail to participate. I don't know if that means getting involved in community. I don't know if that means serving. I don't know if that means giving. I don't know if that means you need to forgive someone. I don't know if that means you need new habits and hobbies. I don't know what it means, but God knows. And if you're a Christian, the Father is deeply interested in speaking to you. Here's what I do know. It's that God is interested, he's deeply interested in your freedom. Freedom exists in living life according to God's design. Anything he does to draw you back to that design, friend, that is God's grace in your life. No matter how uncomfortable it feels, no matter how empty you feel right now, let that emptiness drive you back to a father who loves you, who's promised an eternity for you, a feast. And only through Jesus do we get to enjoy that feast. Run to him. He died so that the great day of the Lord in Zephaniah doesn't have to be an eternity for you, but a feast at God's table. Let me pray. Lord God, I just pray against every excuse right now that we would use to justify ourselves, to make us feel like we deserve more than what you've given. God, make us humble to, to appreciate the table that we've been invited to. God, free us. God, free us from the bondage that we so easily entangle ourselves to. We need your presence, God. We need your freedom. Only you provide. God, anything that is keeping us from living according to your design, God, set us free from it. Set us free, God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.